0: We're really excited to have Megan Burnett here with us today. She's the associate professor of theater at Bellarmine University, and she's here to tell us about Kentuckian Maddie Griffith-Brown, and I'll let her introduce her to you. Thank you. Thank you, Savannah. And now I'm going to imitate Governor Bashir taking off my mask at, this, at the microphone. Um, So, thank you for coming out for this talk on Maddie Griffith Brown. Um, I do have prepared remarks, but if you have a question at any time, feel free to raise your hand, ask a question. Um, I am a professor of theater at Bellarmine University, not a professor of history, but I got interested in Maddie Griffith Brown and her story uh, in around 2014. I'd been performing the character of Fanny Kemble, who was a 19th century British British actress who um, upon coming to America met and married um, Pierce Butler who was one of the largest slave owners in the United States at the time and she uh, did not know this when she married him. She wrote a uh, kept journals and she wrote a journal about her time when she went down to this Georgia plantation and so I became interested in the whole issue of abolitionism and women's rights and how women had a voice or didn't have a voice in the making of this country and the Kentucky Humanities Council had asked if I had um, a second topic for a, a talk that I could give so I looked around and I googled 19th century Kentucky artist female abolition (laughs) and Maddie Griffith Brown came up and so I'm very pleased to be able to talk to you about her I've lived with her story for the last six now seven years and I have this talk but I also have a one-woman show that I perform about her and 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 so at times when I am reading from her own material I'll be using her voice Um, So you'll get a little bit of the actor as we go through the the talk today. And Maddie Griffith Brown is from Owensboro. She's right here from Owensboro, Kentucky. Um, So forms of slavery, such as human trafficking, are an abomination that are as old as time. Often hidden from public view today, slavery in the United States in the 18th and 19th centuries was openly practiced and landed uh, and lauded in much of the country. In the early decades of the Republic, men and women, however, began standing up against this inhumane practice, and one of these women was Mattie Griffith Brown. Lydia Maria Child and Harriet Beecher Stowe were well-known abolitionists in the mid-1800s. Susan B. Anthony, Lucy Stone, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were well-known voices of the early suffragist movement. Griffith worked with all of these women throughout her adult life, but she never came to the same kind of prominence as these other women did. As an immediatist, she worked to free all slaves immediately. As a suffragist, she sought to obtain the vote for women and freed slaves, and she often risked her life in these efforts. She offered strength, courage, and determination in the fight for abolitionism and suffragism in the United States. So Maddie Griffith Brown was a driven, self-motivated woman. Born in the early 19th century here in Owensboro, Kentucky to a family of wealth and privilege, she and her sister were educated in private schools and raised with slaves serving their family. Despising slavery from her childhood, as an adult, Griffith purchased manumission documents and freed the slaves she inherited. I will share the extraordinary history of Mattie Griffith Brown and her contributions as an abolitionist and suffragist using letters, uh, fairly recently discovered financial documents, and samples of her writing. So, Mattie Griffith is best known for publishing Autobiography of a Female Slave in 1857 the book caused an immediate sensation for its subject matter and because it was several weeks after its publication before Griffith revealed to her editor that she a white slave owner herself and not a former slave was the author and this particular edition is authored um, or is was republished by the professor Joe Lockard. He's out of Arizona State University. Um, He also did a lot of research on Matty Griffith here. Uh, I I did research here in the Kentucky Room uh, in 2014 um, after Joe Lockard had done some of his own research down there. So this library has been a wealth of information for several uh, researchers. Uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin published in 1852 and other slave and pseudo slave narratives had come out before Griffith's book which may be one reason why her book never gained the same commercial success that she that Griffith needed Um, you probably know this but I'm going to say it in case you don't so Josiah Henson who formed the inspiration for Uncle Tom's Cabin was interviewed by Harriet Beecher Stowe after his escape from Kentucky to Canada, um, and she based her book upon his life. He later wrote his own uh, version of his life story. He's from here in Lew- uh, in Owensboro. He uh, there's a wonderful documentary that KET has about him. That uh, if you haven't seen it, I recommend it. It's it's really good. But it it. It it chronicles his life from birth around the southern United States into the south, back up to Kentucky, and then finally his escape to Canada. There is a a road marker near where they think his cabin might have been, near the plantation that they think he was from. And that is here. Yes? We did a presentation at our Fine Arts Center in 1993. Yeah? Oh, fantastic! You you performed him. Oh, fantastic! That's great. Do you still perform his character? No. Oh. Still in theater. Oh. Okay. That's good. (laughs) Don't ever get out of theater. Don't ever get out of it. Um, But yeah, at at a certain point, you know, sometimes we let go of our parts. I don't do the Fanny Kimball show anymore yeah I let her go I did her for 12 years I, I'm done um, but I was just when I was doing research here in 2014 it was just really delightful to be able to go over and um, and see this uh, mile marker this uh, historical marker that uh, chronicles um, his existence he wasn't fiction Maddie Griffith was born in the early 19th century, actually in Louisville, to Thomas and Catherine Griffith. Her father was a tavern keeper and a farmer. And uh, the family, this family of slave owners raised Maddie and her sister on a plantation here in Owensboro, just along the Ohio River. Um, Maddie and her older sister, Catherine, were orphaned in childhood. They lost both their mother and their father um, before 1840. Maddie's extended family, the other Griffiths, saw that she received a formal education in Owensboro and Louisville, and then Maddie and her sister inherited the slaves her parent, their parents owned. So at the age of five, six, eight, they each owned six slaves. Um, and their uncles, the other Griffiths, who are quite famous, and there are Griffith streets right around here, That are named for that part of the family. They took turns caring for the for the girls. Uh, Later, Griffith became a writer, contributing frequently to the Louisville Journal. Oh, sorry, this is Josiah Henson and his wife. Here we go. So Griffith became a writer, and uh, she would publish several works of fiction and at least one book of poetry, Poems, which was published in 1852. And that was also the same year as Uncle Tom's Cabin was published. A year later, another book of poetry was published, Sunlight Upon the Landscape and Other Poems, by a daughter of Kentucky. And this is considered attributable to Mattie Griffith. Um, according to Professor Lockard, who has done a lot of research on her, and especially her writings. The anonymous author shares in the introduction the title poem, Sunlight Upon the Landscape, that it was written in response to an 1853 bill introduced into the Ohio legislature that would have banned blacks and mulattoes from residing in or purchasing real estate in that state. The author is galvanized into publishing her opinions on slavery and women's right to free speech by this bill introduced by Mr. Cushing. So here's a portion of the poem, Sunlight Upon the Landscape. That pall, that blight, that voice of deep despair, that pours its anguish on the troubled air is slavery's curse. Land of the great and brave, break in thy wrath the fetters of the slave. My own Kentucky, dare, oh, dare to be what heaven designed, land of the brave and free. Chide not a sister on her daring speech, nor tell me woman has no right to teach. Ye who declare that thought and speech should be free as the pulses of the restless sea, ye who bend down to woman's gentlest nod, and in your worship place her next to God, not in the stormy strife of high debate, not in the forum or the halls of state, not at the polls mid politicians' jars, not in the bloody field and camp of Mars. Night is woman's sphere. But, oh, tis woman's right in freedom's cause to even dare to fight, fight with the weapon God to her has given, the sweet persuasive eloquence of heaven. Griffith's eyes were opened at a very young age to the horrors of slavery, and she eventually took significant action against it. Elizabeth Palmer Peabody, a longtime friend and associate, wrote, Maddie has been known from childhood among her friends as opposed to slavery, but they never appreciated the depth and entireness of her soul's abhorrence of it. Nevertheless they have in some degree humored her in the disposition of her Negroes while she was been, while she has been underage Peabody also reported that Maddie and her sister were brought several times before a Kentucky grand jury for lax management of their slaves there's the, the records have all burned. The courthouse burned a couple of times after the Civil War, so there's no records showing this. But it has been referred to in letters um, by other people who knew Maddie, that she and her sister were brought to um, a grand jury uh, because they were too kind to their slaves. They were too, um, uh, I don't know, um, they gave them too much, many freedoms and too much health care. Makes me mad. Um, so, um, among the documents uh, that were discovered in 2014 in the um, Davies County Courthouse uh, are some of these receipts. They were discovered by actually a high school senior uh, who was interning at the Owensboro Museum of uh, History and uh, Science. And, um, I don't, I don't Oh, I don't have his name down right here. I apologize for that. Um, but he, f- he was looking for documentation on a particular abolitionist who was also a teacher. And in those, he found these documents related to Maddie and Catherine Griffith. So um, these receipts. And invoices detail the medical treatment given to the slaves that Maddie and Catherine inherited. Medical invoices list the use of quinine and the obstetric services given to the pregnant women. Other receipts detail the clothing and food purchased for the sisters, as well as their trips to Louisville and their schooling. Um, so, a school bill from George Scarborough School, um, receipt for medical treatment of slaves. It's really hard to see, but Um, cash for midwife and board Um, there's another one where there's uh, quinine so uh, quinine was used to treat them for malaria and these bills these costs were coming out of the income these slaves were earning for the plantation because they were owned by Catherine and uh, Maddie at this time. Griffith eventually left Kentucky with her sister Catherine uh, here we go. and uh, they ended up in Philadelphia living with an aunt and then um, found their way to Cherry Street. Catherine Griffith, her sister, married a Dr. Slattery, and he threw his wife and children upon Maddie because Maddie would not yield to him her Negroes to be sold, which she would not do because she felt obliged to set them free. Both Griffith and her sister abhorred slavery, and they wanted to help end it. They moved in with an aunt in Philadelphia, but were given no support from their family in Kentucky. They lived in poverty, and isolation, and experienced ill health much of their adult lives. Yet, these privations did nothing to stop Griffith's purpose in life, to manumit all slaves immediately. Griffith was influenced in her opinions against slavery, not just from having seen slaves abused as she was growing up, but from meeting other abolitionists, such as George and Olive Scarborough, her school teachers witnessing and learning of events in the 1850s, and reading the works of United States Senator Charles Sumner, William Lloyd Garrison, Lydia Maria Child, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and others. Senator Sumner, a radical Republican and abolitionist from Massachusetts, made a passionate demand for a slave-free Kansas in the Senate chambers. During this speech known as the Crimes Against Kansas, Sumner insulted fellow Senator Andrew Butler from South Carolina. The Senator from South Carolina has read many books of chivalry and believes himself a chivalrous knight with sentiments of honor and courage. Of course, he has chosen a mistress to whom he has made his vows and who, though ugly to others, is always lovely to him. Though polluted in the sight of the world, is chaste in his sight. It was two days after this speech that South Carolina Congressman Preston Brooks in defense of Senator Butler struck Senator Sumner with a cane in the Senate Chambers, beating Senator Sumner into unconsciousness. It's tempting to make comparisons to life today, but I won't go there. Uh, Sumner's passion encouraged Griffith to take action in the cause of manumission. Griffith agreed with radical abolitionists that the United States would not remain united, free, and at peace until all slaves were freed at once and no new states would be allowed to enter the Union as slave states. Griffith became actively involved with the abolitionist movement while in Philadelphia. Relying on her early, earlier literary success, she was sanguine that a conscientious and faithful picture of slavery from a slaveholder would initiate at least a literary life in the North by which she could support herself and her family and be able to return to, to her poor people, the slaves, the money they had earned for her to establish themselves in freedom. Griffith wrote articles and serialized novels such as Madge Vertner and later Uh, A True Story of a Little Hunchback, for the National Anti-Slavery Standard. Wanting to take action regarding the slaves Griffith still owned, she wrote the autobiography of a female slave in an effort to raise money to free the human beings she had inherited. Catherine Griffith Slattery's husband, Dr. Slattery, threatened to take the children from them if Maddie Griffith published her book. Yet this threat did not stop Maddie. This pseudo-slave narrative is the story of Anne, a former slave. Anne tells her story of receiving a good education from her first master, being sold to a cruel slave owner at the age of 12, and the many years of cruelty and beatings that followed until bought and eventually freed by a benevolent white family in Louisville. And, as the story of many freed slaves goes she eventually wound up in Canada and became a teacher here's an excerpt from autobiography of a female slave written by Maddie Griffith and published in 1857 the first lick from Mr. Peterkin laid my back open I writhed I wrestled but blow after blow descended each harder than the preceding one I shrieked I screamed I pleaded I prayed but there was no mercy shown me. Mr. Peterkin, having fully gratified and quenched his spleen, turned to Mr. Jones and said, Now is your turn. You can beat her as much as you please. Only just leave a bit of life in her all I cares for. Yes, I'm not spoiled for the market, but I does want to take a little of the damned pride out of her. Now, boys, for by this time all the slaves on that place, save Aunt Polly, had assembled round the post. You will see what a true stroke I can make, but darn my buttons if I doesn't think Mr. Peterkin has drawn all the blood. So saying, Jones drew back the cowhide at arm's length, and making a few evolutions with his body, took what he called sure aim. I closed my eyes in terror. More from the terrible pain than from the frantic shoutings of the crowd, I knew that Mr. Jones had given me a lick that he called true blue. Griffith created controversy when she did not inform her editor at Redfield of her identity until several weeks after the book's publication. Why would Griffith write of a slave's experience in autobiographical form, hiding her own identity, even if just for a short amount of time? A letter she wrote to Anne and Carolyn Weston may offer an answer. She writes to them, I'm only too happy to serve the anti-slavery cause in any manner, no matter how humble or how great, only use me. I want to do something of more signal than prating, This I know I owe to the slaves for circumstance, accident, and condition, cast my life among them, and through my very blood, unconscious it is true, I have helped to wrong them. Further research into this authorship issue brought up this statement from an antiquarian website. Autobiography of a Female Slave is one of several noteworthy antebellum novels about slavery that were written by abolitionist authors. In some cases, these novels reflected the storytelling style and conventions of the slave narrative so convincingly that they were mistaken for actual autobiographies of former slaves. The effectiveness of these novels in representing slavery and the point of view of slaves made them useful weapons in the anti-slavery struggle. Many abolitionists, including Lydia Maria Child, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and members of the American Anti-Slavery Society, helped Griffith by giving her money to free these inherited slaves. Upon publication of Maddie's book, Child found that the autobiography evinced greatness of soul, both moral and intellectual, and being written by a Kentucky woman, it is an invaluable acquisition to our cause. Child wrote to Griffith and induced abolitionists to rally around her. She struck up a close friendship with Maddie, noting, I have never met with any person who so completely identifies herself with the slaves as she does. Joe Lockard states in his afterward to Griffith's autobiography of a female slave, which he uh, republished in 1998, In 1858, with a $100 grant from Garrison's American Anti-Slavery Society, she traveled to Kentucky with the express purpose of freeing her slaves. Elizabeth Palmer Peabody uh, developed a close friendship with Maddie uh, that lasted for many years. Peabody learned of Griffith's desire to free her slaves and when she saw the desperate situation in which Griffith lived with her sister and her three children, she found a creative way to help Griffith support her family. Peabody wrote letters to establish a subscription of 20 ladies and gentlemen who should subscribe or be responsible for $50 a piece to be paid to her as a salary for the ensuing year, engaging her to write tales and whatever else she desired to write. In this way, she was able to support her family and herself for the year, go to Kentucky in October of 1858, as she wished to do, to free her slaves. This support, and that offered by the National Anti-Slavery Society, helped Griffith finally return to Kentucky to free her slaves. Now, <clears throat> while I have yet to find the actual manumission documents Maddie obtained for her slaves, again, they, they may have been burned down in the, in the courthouse, Um, nor any other documents detailing the amount of money required to take such a bold and forthright action. I did find similar documents uh, in two other slavery cases in Kentucky from the Kentucky Historical Society. Um, and Both uh, documents describe a bond of $500 to ensure that the freed slave will not become a burden on the state of Kentucky. Know all men by these presents that we, Isaac Richard and Harry Richardson, are held and firmly bound onto the commonwealth in the sum of $500 for the payment thereof well and truly to be made. We bind ourselves, our heirs, Eskins, and administrators, jointly and firmly, uh, severally firmly, by these presents sealed and dated this October of 1860. The condition of the above obligation is is such that whereas the above bound Isaac hath been emancipated and set free by the said Harry Richardson, a free man of color, by his deed for that purpose of record in the clerk's office of the Bourbon County Court. These um, bonds, these manumission bonds were meant to make sure that the slave, the now freed slave, would never become a burden on Kentucky again. Yes, sir? Uh, just, uh, so, what happened to the money? Did they, just, did they actually give it to the, uh, to the freed slaves? No. I, I no. 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 That, that no. Um, the bond would have gone to the court system. Yeah. Now, um, Maddie and other people who freed their slaves, many of them did try to find ways to give them the money that they had earned for them. So that, um, so for example, Maddie would have had to uh, raise if she had six slaves, and the bond, or the manumission bond was 500 dollars apiece, then she would have had to raise at least 3,000 um, dollars. And if she wanted to then give them money for them to help start a new life in a free state, that's another several hundred dollars or thousands of dollars. It's a lot of money in 1858. A lot lot of money that would have been hard to come by. So this subscription service to help her earn money by uh, selling her writing, the, the selling of her book, the money from the National Anti-Slavery S- Society, it all added up so that she could come and do this. And I don't know, she might have been able to um, get the manumission bonds for less than this. Again, I don't have those specific documents. Um, and in Kentucky, Kentucky never actually passed laws that outlawed teaching slaves to read or write, um, never prohibited owners from freeing their slaves, and never actually forced freed slaves to leave the state. And there are stories of freedmen, um, uh, freedmen and women who, you know, living in the state but there was always the chance of being captured by um, slave traders. Griffith described her experience of returning t- to Kentucky to free her slaves in letters to Sidney Howard Gay and Lydia Maria Child. I was quite retired, did not see many people. Those whom I did see were coldly polite to me. My family, those whom I saw, were civil but said I would surely live to regret what I had done, that it was rash and ill-advised, but as I made my pass, so must I walk. My uncle thought it was commendable to practice what I preached, but let me tell you, they did not like to see me in the kitchen. They appeared to look upon me as a dangerous person. This was mortifying. Some friends refused to see me. I met Frost with ice. It was delightful to watch their countenances as they slowly received the idea of personal freedom. It seemed as if they underwent some heavenly transfiguration. Their faces, even their bodies, appeared to glow. What? they exclaimed. Are we going to be free? To belong to ourselves? Oh, it seems like a dream. They laughed and they wept, they sang and they danced alternately. Indeed, I almost feared Henderson was crazy. He was so bewildered with joy. It was a blissful moment for me when I placed the deeds of manumission in their hands. I never expect to experience such a thrill of happiness again. Griffith did not seek attention for her actions. In her letter to Gay, Griffith said, I have merely done my duty, what I was obliged by every consideration, human and divine, to do, and I hope that it will be speedily forgotten and nothing else said of it. Tis a private affair, and as such, let it be left where all private matters should be, in silence. Clearly, this was before social media hit the universe. Um, freeing her slaves was not the end of Griffith's abolitionist activities. She moved to New York to become to work for the National Anti-Slavery Standard. While there, Griffith lived above the offices of the Freedmen's Aid Commission, where she watched a mob try to burn down the building during the New York City draft riots. These riots, which occurred in mid-July 1863, began as immigrant-led protests against conscription into the Union Army and a draft exemption fee. They devolved into massive anti-black rioting. Uh, Griffith, though herself endangered, was most concerned about the blacks being attacked. The Negroes, the poor Negroes, they have been the worst sufferers. No one helped them they were recklessly shot down hanged burned roasted alive every device and refinement of cruelty practiced upon them and no one dared interpose on their behalf there's um, a longer letter about uh... her description of the draft riots and it describes horrific tales of killing and torture she herself, I imagine in this painting, in this um, uh, uh, drawing, that this, this woman here is Maddie. I don't know that she is, but, um, but she did come out into the street and rescue black people who were under attack and brought them into the building. So she did risk her own life during these riots to try to help save people. So, I'll always imagine that that's her. It was very common during this time that people involved in the abolitionist movement became involved in the issue of women's suffrage. The 15th Amendment allowed freed men to vote, but not women, white or freed. Maddie supported and worked to obtain the right to vote for all, white women, freed men, and freed women. This became a dividing line in the suffragist movement later in the 19th century. While in New York, Griffith combined her passion to stop slavery with her belief in the rights of women to vote in this country. She became increasingly involved in the suffragist movement, eventually becoming an officer of the American Equal Rights Association, as well as the Women's Loyal National League, which was led by Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Lucy Stone. As one of the original committee members, Griffith was a signatory to a petition the League sent to Congress. This petition, written in May 1863, stated in part, the undersigned women of the United States earnestly pray that your honorable body will pass at the earliest practicable day, an act emancipating all persons of African descent held to involuntary service or labor in the United States. Senator Sumner, one of Maddie's heroes, credited the Women's Loyal National League as the principal force behind the drive and eventual passage of the 13th Amendment. And this slide is one of the documents that um, it, what I've put up here are portions of a, uh, a petition that they were circulating to get signatories for emancipation and eventually also for suffragism. Uh, We ask you to sign and circulate this petition for the entire abolition of slavery. We have now 100,000 signatures. We want a million. And this, this is what I want want to, uh, I think this is so powerful women you cannot vote or fight for your country your only way to power in the government is through the exercise of this one sacred constitutional right of petition and we ask you to use it now to the utmost and uh, Maddie Griffith would have been one of the women to help craft the language of these petitions but I love that phrase your only way to be a power in the government is through this one sacred constitutional right of petition. And we still have that. We may not always get results from it, but we still have that. Maddie helped create the first radical feminist organization, the National Woman Suffrage Association, in 1869. She was elected one of its 12 vice presidents. Maddie helped craft and distribute petitions for the abolition, abolitionist and suffragist movements. And, uh, and I've shared with you some of the language from one of those petitions. Later in her life, Maddie uh, met Albert Gallatin Brown and married him in 1866, surprising herself and her friends, family, and colleagues. She never expected to marry, much less find a mate and a partner who shared her beliefs and supported her efforts to bring those beliefs to light. Griffith wrote to her friend Elizabeth Neal Gay, I thought I should never marry, but fight out life on the woman's rights plan, single and alone, He is very anti-slavery and was military secretary for Massachusetts Governor John A. Andrew. Furthermore, he promised to leave me very free in all matters of thought and action. Griffith did not leave her activism behind when she married. She remained very active and sought to remain connected to Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Make sure. Um, I'll read you a portion of a letter that she sent to Mrs. Stanton in 1868. Dear Mrs. Stanton, it has been some time since I had the pleasure of hearing from you. I only know of your movements through the br- brilliant columns of the Revolution, but I should like to have a little nearer account of yourself from yourself, so I take time to drop you a line. Will you? And in this letter, she's asking that um, uh, Susan B. Anthony help out uh, a friend of hers, Miss Eslin, from England. Later in their marriage, the Browns began to be less active in their causes and to enjoy their life together as a married couple. They had no children. Neighbors reported seeing Maddie Griffith Brown in Boston wearing bright red dresses complete with gloves and parasol. And I have not found that photograph. I know it must exist, but I haven't found it yet. Maddie uh, died in Boston in in 1906 of a pulmonary embolism after suffering from breast cancer for two years. Maddie Griffith Brown published works of fiction to bring the plight of slaves into public view. She petitioned politicians to end slavery. She sought the right to vote for women as well as all freed slaves. She influenced other men and women to work to end slavery. She inspired respect from men and women working in the abolitionist and suffragist movements with her moral and patriotic convictions. Maddie Griffith Brown risked her life and reputation to defend, to make possible a world free of slavery and to secure the right for all men and women to vote. She was a true agent of social change and a granddaughter of Owensboro. Thank you. Um Some of you may be uh, much more familiar with the Griffith family, and um, once Maddie left, she sold her slaves and she left the state. She never came back. And I don't know if other members of her family traveled to see her I doubt it. So um, in the material that I have found um, in the Kentucky room, once she leaves, there's really no mention of her. So the, the, Owens, the Owensboro Griffiths who stayed really just let her and Catherine go. They just aren't part of the, cur- the, the history here. Um, but the Griffith family is a very important family to this city. Uh, I think there's a mansion right over here. they would have um, remained on her uncle's plantations okay. so and uncle yes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know and probably treated them very similar to the way he might they might have treated the other slaves um, one of the, the questions that I've had and I haven't been able to um, track this information down yet is at least one of those slaves had children two children because there's documentation for that, for the births of her two children. Um, from what I've been able to find out, what, Man, what Maddie did was to free the adult slaves. I don't know what happened to the children of the slaves. If they were allowed to go with their parents or kept, I don't know. Uh, I know some of their names because of the documentation or their first names. Um, Some of them would have had the Griffith name um, uh, as their last name. Um, Once they were freed, they might have changed that. So um, finding the path that they took um, is part of my next level of research into their story and her story. Any other questions? Yes, go ahead. Uh I just uh this is kinda of something I probably should just ask you about. Mm-hmm. The uh the new and and this was a really good presentation. I enjoyed every bit of it. Thank you. And, uh, I can certainly shorten it and do a Zoom presentation. Sure. Yeah. I like to get contact information from and Absolutely. I've got a card in my purse. and I'll give it to you when I'm done. Yeah. The um Burnett. Mhm. And I just want to um Uh, share. My parents, Pat and Jerry Burnett, who have moved from Oklahoma to Kentucky to live with me are here. Um, I don't often get to have my parents uh, in uh, my space when I'm performing, so this has been a real treat. Uh, Yeah, I'll be glad to talk to you about that. You had a question, ma'am? Um, once he married Catherine, he took her. He took possession of her property, which consisted of the slaves that she inherited, and he sold them. And um, then, I, uh, then once Maddie chose to leave, and uh, her sister chose to leave with her, with the three children. They were small. Uh, he didn't have anything to do with them. They they moved to Philadelphia and I uh, and he stayed here. Um, in one of the um, genealogy books, there's um, he's listed and he's as far as I know he stayed here. Um, he threatened to take the children from them if the book got published, uh, which I find interesting. Which means that they told the family they were going to publish this book. I guess, but you know. I've would just done it maybe they were more uh, perhaps more honest than I would have been prepared to be um, but no yeah they had he had nothing to do with Catherine or the children after they left and uh, and for the first um, while until um, Maddie was regularly earning money um, they went basically from I I liken it to the littlest princess Who uh, by Frances Hodgson Burnett, she had everything. She's like you know, like a little princess. And then suddenly, her father is missing, and they think he's dead. And so now she is a pauper, and so she lives in the attic, and she has nothing. And it was like that. They moved to Philadelphia, and they had nothing. The sisters um, um, they shared dresses. You know, Um, there's a story. that Maddie uh, travels to England with a group of suffragists, and she's in a ship that in the, um, um, it's the the passage that's between France and England that, thank you, the English Channel, thank you. um, There was a storm uh, that came up and smashed this ship uh, into the docks, and of the things that were destroyed on there was her trunk of clothing. It was smashed to pieces. And um, I imagine that that would have been a huge hardship for her and her sister to overcome, to replace those dresses. Um, because a, a dress in 1858, 1860, was quite large, right? I think gone with the wind. There's a lot of material and fabric in that dress. And, uh, um, and they could have been quite expensive to replace. Um, at the museum, that the Owensboro Museum of Science and History, um, Maddie Griffith is now part of the um, permanent exhibit of Women in Owensboro to Know. I, I don't remember the exact name of the exhibit, but women, um, important women to Owensboro's history. She is now part of that permanent exhibit, partly because of this research that I've been doing and talking about and, and sharing her story. Um, but two other professors, Dr. Lockard and um, uh, uh, Larry Saplair, have written articles about her, and though they have been published in the Filson Historical Quarterly over the years. if there aren't any more questions then i will just say thank you i really enjoyed being able to tell her story and uh... get more information about her and i will be sending her a copy of her book um, the one that was republished by professor lockhart in um, the late nineties and i'll get that sent here to your library so you have a copy of it here um, you can't just have uncle tom's cabin he's important but you gotta also have the daughter of Owensboro, you've got to have um, her writing as well. You can find some of her books on Amazon through those um, Publish on Demand sites. Uh, Madge Vertner is one of them. I got uh, a copy of her book that way. So you can find different versions of this book on Amazon if you want. But I'll send that one to you all. All right. thank you. Thank you very much. And now I will do my Opposite side of Governor Bashir and say thank you, Savannah.